the more that you read, the more things you'll know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. There are thousands upon thousands of books out there, and my goal is to read them all. Welcome to Zoo Notable, taking wisdom from from self improvement, conservation, and animal related books, distilling them down, and sharing what we can learn with you. Now, whether you are an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and life, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. Welcome, welcome back to Zoo Notables. This week, we're looking at an oldie but a goodie. I have actually done a Zoo Notable on this book previously on my blog. If you'd like to check that out, I'll put a link in the description down below. But quite a few of my favorite ideas from this book keep popping back up in my life. And I just wanted to share some insight from what is considered a wealth of knowledge in the animal care field. So today, we're going to be discussing Animals in Translation by Dr. Temple Grandin. And let's kick things off with a quote. Looking at those animals, I realized that none of them would even exist if human beings hadn't bred them into being. And ever since that moment, I've believed that we brought these animals here, so we're responsible for them. We owe them a decent life and a decent death, and their lives should be as low stress as possible. Now, if you are in the animal field, it is unlikely you haven't heard the name Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin is a brilliant animal welfare specialist who revolutionized the way livestock are handled and improved quality of life for animals around the globe. She is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and holds a PhD in animal science from the University of Illinois. Dr. Grandin also happens to be autistic, and while she struggled to learn throughout life, she realized her struggles made her uniquely adept in working with animals. Animals in Translation is her first animal-focused book, published in 2005, and was followed by Animals Make Us Human in 2009. I've read her amazing books and even met her at a zookeeper conference where, folks, she absolutely dazzled me with her intuitive approach to dealing with animals. So when I dove into Animals in Translation to read as a zoo notable specifically, I figured I'd be sharing some great insights on animal welfare and maybe a little bit of how to apply to our own, how to apply these ideas to our own lives, much like the wisdom I received from Karen Pryor's book, Lads Before the Wind. But little did I realize that the incredible insight I'd receive on much broader scale, so much had little to do with animal welfare, although there is some relation. But again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let's get started on this wonderful gem, Animals in Translation. Big idea number one, everyone is a genius. Quote, Dr. Pepperberg used a different branch of behaviorism called social modeling theory to teach Alex an African gray parrot. This theory stated that most animals learn by observing, not trial and error. Instead of teaching Alex directly, she taught her research assistant while Alex sat on his perch and watched. She also used items highly desirable to a parrot, crunchy pieces of bark, for her learning materials. If Dr. Pepperberg wanted Alex to learn the color blue, she took a piece of tempting bark and painted it blue. Then she'd sit down with Alex and her research assistant and ask the assistant, what color? A right answer meant the assistant got to play with the bark. Wrong answers meant he didn't get the reward. 
All Alex had to do was watch. Now using this approach was a breakthrough. Alex learned so much, he started asking questions on his own. One day he looked at his reflection in the mirror and asked, what color? Now, Alex was never taught to ask questions. He did so on his own, spontaneously. If you have never read the amazing breakthrough research done by Dr. Pepperberg and Alex, I highly recommend her book, Alex and Me, where she goes into beautiful details of teaching Alex through social modeling and how Alex turned the behavior research world on its head by his innovative and, well, genius mind. And it's easy to say Alex was a special case. Even Dr. Pepperberg agreed he was a special bird. However, that doesn't diminish the genius behind the bird. In Animals in Translation, Temple argues how all animals are smart in their own right. They often have superhuman skills that we can only dream of. I mean, echolocation, anyone? And as Dr. Grandin puts it, animals have animal genius. Birds are navigation geniuses. Dogs are smell geniuses. Eagles are visual geniuses. And honestly, the same can be said for people. And this reminds me of a quote attributed to Al Albert Einstein, everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it is stupid. And as Peter Drucker, author of If Effective Executive would put it, what are your strengths? Focus on those, celebrating them and owning them. Work hard on those strengths and you won't have to worry about weaknesses. They will become irrelevant. And this is the same thing as genius. So where are you a genius? What are your strengths? And if you haven't thought about it or you think that you don't have genius, stop and consider it. Are you going at a problem the same way everyone else has done it? Try something completely different, something more true to yourself and find the genius mind hiding within and then let your genius shine out. Now we've discussed genius, let's talk about big idea number two, the bad becoming normal, or are we turning into farmers of rapist roosters? Okay, so hear me out. Let me explain that whole rapist rooster. As Dr. Grandin puts in her book, when I was just starting my work with chickens a few years ago, I visited a chicken farm. Inside the barn where all the chickens lived, I found a dead hen lying there on the floor. She was all cut up and her body was fresh. I went back to the farmer and asked him, what was that? He told me the rooster did it. The rooster killed the hen. He acted like it was a perfectly normal thing for a rooster to do. Now, I knew that couldn't be right. If roosters killed hens in nature, there wouldn't be any chickens. The chicken farmer told me that half of his roosters were quote unquote rapist murderers. I was stunned. There are no species alive in nature where half of the males kill reproductive age females. There had to be something seriously wrong with those birds. And speaking to colleagues and friends, I discovered the source. Ian Duncan from the University of Guelph in Canada had studied roosters and found that rooster courtship program had gotten accidentally deleted in about half of the birds as a result of single trait or selective breeding. A normal rooster does a courtship dance before trying to mate with a hen. This instinctual dance triggers a separate instinctual reaction in the hen's brain and she crouches down into a sexually receptive position 
so the rooster can mount her. She doesn't crouch unless she sees that dance. But half the roosters had stopped doing the dance, which meant that the hens had stopped crouching down for them. So the roosters became rapists. They jumped on the hens and tried to mate them by force. And when the hen tried to get away, the rooster would attack her with his spurs or his toes and slash her to death. Yikes. My first gut reaction to this really eye-opening story was to talk about how we are messing with the food chain in horrific ways. But whatever we're doing to the chicken's genes is actually a story for another day. It's this next part that Temple mentions which waved red flags at me and made this a big idea. The really bad thing was that this change happened slowly enough that the farmers and breeder colonies didn't realize they were creating a monster. Nobody noticed what was happening. As the roosters got more and more aggressive, humans unconsciously adjusted their perception of how a normal rooster should act. It was the case of the bad becoming normal. Now this reminds me of the Indian philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti who said, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Now our society has become accustomed to new technology, new food products, blue light, sleep deprivation, plastic packaging, and generally breaking away from nature. Only these advances have other side effects. Yes, technology allows us to continue working from home or connect with friends and family across the country. But what are some of the downsides as a result of so much stimuli? Our brains aren't meant to deal with so many inputs all at once. Like a gazelle on the Serengeti, our brains are meant to deal with one lion roaring at us at a time. But with today's culture, we're instead dealing with the entire jungle attacking us. And this is important because instead of recognizing that our brains aren't equipped to deal with the pressures and stress we put ourselves through day in and day out, we suppress it and say, that's the way things are now, deal with it. No, I just did a zoo notable on Nicole Jardim's book, Picture Period. And I'll remind you of her introduction when she says, despite what you've been told, problematic period, mood swings, acne, premenstrual syndrome, and low libido are not just a part of being female. While these experiences might be common, they are certainly not normal. Except in today's world, how many of us accept painful and irregular cycles and our hormones in our entire lives out of whack? And yes, in Fix Your Period, Nicole is talking specifically to women who have menstrual cycles, but it relates to what Temple Grandin is saying and applies to each and every one of us. We forget the ways our bodies and our brains were built to move, and we don't move like that anymore. We ignore the cycles in nature because we stay indoors, on computers, unable to sleep because of the blue lights permeating our lives, our eyes and nerves, keeping us awake and dulling our senses, and, as Dr. Grandin might put it, creating monsters. And we don't notice these changes because they sort of seep into our lives. If you put a frog in boiling water, it will hop out because it's hot. But if you gradually turn the heat up on the water with the frog in it, the frog will stay because it's so gradual. It becomes the new normal for them. And things are really starting to heat up for, with us. The society is becoming like out of control roosters who have had vital and hardwired behaviors bred out of them. 
we are the farmers and it's up uh, to us to say, hey, that's not normal. So what are you considering your new normal? Is it supposed to be normal to just be completely overwhelmed with all the stimuli coming at us? Or just to be getting by on just five or six hours of sleep every night? This isn't just the way it is. This is the bad becoming normal. And the end result could be as devastating as roosters turning into murderer monsters. And before we continue on, a quick word from our sponsors. We have Anchor, again, the, the website that we are using to, uh, to show, give you this wonderful podcast and ZooFit, my program to help you eat clean, live green, and train positive. Want even more wisdom from these amazing books? Learn ways to make a big difference through small actions. Join the Hummingbirds or the ZooFit tribe on Patreon, a fan-funded platform that allows you to support and appreciate your favorite artists and creators. Our Patreon page offers special specials for members plus bonuses from Zoo Notables, recipes, and other ZooFit projects. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the Zenotable. We're back with big idea number three. Our brains are for moving. More lessons from a sea squirt. The idea of us changing our ways without noticing how bad things are getting is really kind of disconcerting. This new trend, more like a lifestyle of being addicted to technology, our phones, and constant stimulation is very damaging to our brains and our bodies because we basically have a brain so we can move. The brain evolved in creatures to help them move around without knocking into things. As Dr. Rodolfo Genus explains, the sea squirt starts off in life looking something like a tadpole with about 300 brain cells. It ends up more like a turnip. The first day of its life, the sea squirt swims around until it finds its permanent home. Once it finds its spot, it doesn't move again for the rest of its life. Here's the interesting part. While it is swimming, it has a primitive nervous system. But once it is attached to an object, it eats its own brain. Since the sea squirt isn't ever going to move again, it doesn't need a brain. An animal that eats its brain? You know what else eats brains, right guys? Zombies. And being stuck in our phones, scrolling through social media, disconnecting from nature and our loved ones, we're setting ourselves up to become a zombie, or more accurately, a sea squirt society. We might as well absorb and eat our own brains. The moral of the sea squirt story is we have brains so we can move. If we didn't move, we wouldn't need brains and we wouldn't have them. Now, most of the people I interact with, zookeepers, animal care staff, or fitness professionals, don't necessarily have this issue on a literal sense. But just because movement isn't an issue for you at work doesn't mean that we are completely in the clear. 
Metaphorically speaking, we should always be moving forward towards your goals, your dreams, improving your skills, improving animal welfare, making the world a better place. As Brian Johnson from Optimize Program states so frequently from his coach, Phil Stutz, we are never going to be exonerated. We are always going to have something to work towards. We're never going to be the best because standards will always shift and ways will improve. And according to George Leonard in his book, Mastery, we can be relieved and excited about that idea. As he puts it, for a master, the rewards gained along the way are fine, but they are not the main reason for the journey. Ultimately, the master and the master's path are one. And if the traveler is fortunate, that is, if the path is complex and profound enough, the destination is two miles farther away for every mile he or she travels. So yes, we must keep moving forward physically, literally, and progressing towards our goals, our dreams, and keep striving to be the best versions of ourselves. So let's connect to the earth, our loved ones, and even ourselves in a healthy and positive way. Use the brain for its true purpose, to keep moving today, tomorrow, and forever. And we'll round this Zoo Notable out with our fourth big idea, animals make us human. Quote, Aborigines have a saying, dogs make us human. Now we know that's probably literally true. People wouldn't have become who we are today if we hadn't co-evolved with dogs. I think it's also true that all animals make us human. That's why I hope we'll start to think more respectfully about animal intelligence and talent. That would be good for people because there are a lot of things we can't do that animals can. We can use their help. Dr. Grandin shared some really interesting information research about how our very early ancestors became the modern human, basically because of their coexistence with wolves. Before partnering with wolves, anthropologists believed humans behaved much more like other primates. The humans weren't nearly as social as we are today. They stayed in family groups, but never had non-kin friendships. They were solitary hunters, normally going after smaller animals to feed just themselves or their family. And before wolves, humans were nomadic, not very territorial. However, all of these are characteristics of wolves. The anthropologists believe that these early years of partnering with wolves, A, wasn't a dominant species domesticating a subordinate species. They were actually considered to be on equal grounds. Basically, two different species with complementary skills teamed up together, something that has never happened before and really has never happened since. And B, early humans began taking on more wolf-like behaviors, hunting in groups, staying in a general region and establishing territory and forming friendships outside their immediate family. So it's not just that we turned wolves into dogs. Wolves actually had a hand in domesticating people. Humans co-evolved with dogs. We changed them and they changed us. You know, we are just scraping the surface of what animals are capable of doing both for their own sake and to benefit our own lives. To this extent, we are responsible for caring for them and the planet because they are an integral part of our lives. From the food we eat, 
to even how we came to be the humans we are today. Without animals, there would be no people. And even if there were people, what kind of people would we be? We do owe animals a decent life and, as Grandin said, a decent death. As happy and healthy as we want our own lives to be. Let's foster that relationship with animals and, it, and each other with love, respect, and compassion. So that is Temple Grandin's book, Animals in Translation. If these ideas resonated with you, I highly recommend this book and her other book, Animals Make Us Human. You can learn more about Dr. Grandin at templegrandin.com. As a prominent author and speaker on both autism and animal behavior, she has been featured in many nationally recognized programs, and there is also an Emmy award-winning movie about her life. That's all I've got for this great book. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea resonated the most with you? And how can you incorporate that into your life starting today? And please feel free to share some of your favorite books that you love to see as you notable on. Keep working on becoming the best version of yourself today, tomorrow, and forever. For you, your community, the animals, and the planet. Take care, and I'll see you all next time.